0: Hi, everybody, I'm Scott. Hello, I'm Julie. And this is a Good Story is Hard to Find podcast.
1: Where two Catholic friends talk about the books and movies they love and the traces of the one reality that lie below the surface.
0: Yes, and uh, today we're dealing with mostly reality
1: (laughs) (laughs) reality artfully communicated yes
0: i think so yeah a gentleman in moscow by amor tolls um a wonderful wonderful book
1: oh i'm glad you liked it yeah
0: it was amazing it really was something else
1: surprised me i picked it for uh my personal book challenge for this year um Where I have a list of books, but this one had been recommended to me by so many people. And the premise is that um, during the Bolshevik era in Russia, a gentleman, younger gentleman, is condemned to house arrest in a fancy hotel in Moscow. And I (laughs) thought that sounds super claustrophobic, (laughs) very depressing, Oh my gosh, who cares? And so, I kept putting it off and I finally said, okay, this is why it had to be a book challenge. I had to force myself to read it. And I read it so fast because it was magical, I thought.
0: Me too. Yeah, I thought it was magical too. And an interesting uh, choice uh, here at the end of the pandemic, you know, oh, yeah. I thought that was kind of funny. <laughs> and, um,
1: Unintentional, but yeah. yeah.
0: And um, you know what else was interesting to me is that um, I, I read a lot of science fiction. So, um, you know, this is... Not an uncommon situation in science fiction, you know, they were on a ship somewhere out in space and they have nowhere to go, you know, so they're not getting off this hotel, you know, so um, (laughs) it's like, you know, the Enterprise, right? You know, it's, well, they got to, they get to go to docks and stuff, but I'm just saying that um, at one point, for some reason, it just reminded me, oh, like, this is like a space station or something like that. I never
2: thought
1: of that, but you know what, because the potential is always there outside, What When you said that, it just made me think of the Alfred Bester book, The Star is My Destination, Mm. where that person has been left in a much worse situation than this. (laughs) Yes. But he turns to thoughts of revenge. That's all that drives him.
2: Yes. And one of the things that Mm. makes
1: this book very magical is... As soon as he is condemned to this exile inside of the hotel, the Count instantly starts adjusting his point of view. Mm. Oh, I always wanted to take a steamship trip. I always wanted to be in a, uh, take a long train trip. What's part of the fun of that? The tiny little place that you stay, your little Mm. room. This is like that. Yeah. And I thought, wow. And he's not even just talking himself into it. He's just like, well, hold on a minute. Yeah,
0: he's got that attitude, right?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: that's fantastic, um, and and so very true. And I, I love that contrast. I hadn't thought of that, so that's really cool. So yeah, yeah. But yeah, and the star's my destination. I mean, he was bent on revenge um, angry, for the situation so. he was put in, and yeah, this this fella is the opposite of that. Um, uh, right, the absolute opposite. You know, so he's he's constantly adjusting his attitude, even though he despaired. Mm-hmm. Um, he he got through that, and. Um, And lived his life.
1: Yeah, so you can't really tell very much about it except for me to say, so he's, he is, um, you know, nobility, so Mm -hmm. that's no good. But he wrote a poem in his youth before the revolution that was instrumental in helping inspire people to have the revolution and lead it. And because of that, they commute a de- death sentence into exile. He has to stay in the Hotel Metropole, which is a big, fancy luxury hotel where he's been living for four years. And if he comes out, they'll kill him. And this is endless. I mean, they, mm-hmm. they're they never going to let him out. And mm-hmm. so what it does is show over the years who he's meeting and how he's living and what's going on. And it it does sound horrible and claustrophobic when I, I describe it, but it has such a whimsical but yet realistic way of looking at it. And the narrator of the book does a really wonderful job of saying, well, and this and this and this, but that's not what happened, blah, 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 blah.
2: Hmm.
1: And um, it's very upbeat and inspiring. And in fact, um, my mother, I originally was telling her about it, and she was like, oh, no, that sounds terrible. And I was like, I know, but it's wonderful. (laughs) And so, this time through, I was trying not to talk about it and bug her about it, but I got to the halfway through and I was like oh my gosh I forgot this thing happened and she said when you're done can I read it <laughs> and in three days she's halfway through with it
0: oh that's great and it's a big book yeah yeah it is yeah yes. but it was it was it was terrific and um, if I had a, I was reading the ebook, right? right <laughs> oh, if okay. I had a highlighter it would be full of taps <laughs> oh <laughs> I mean my
1: book is full of little just, darts yeah, yeah
0: constant constant just like oh that is so well put well done
2: mm-hmm.
0: yeah yeah yeah, just full of really good stuff. Yeah. And uh, Casablanca, too. <laughs> but we'll talk about that, yes. I'm sure. Yeah, how fun.
1: Yeah, and and Casablanca, surprisingly, is key. And i have just got to throw in a side note here that I just picked up from the library, Charles Chapu's he got to be 75, turned in his letter of resignation, which was accepted. And this is a common practice. And um, so then he started thinking about what are things worth dying for? and that make life worth living, which is the name of the book. Really? And one of the things he's talked about several times, I'm on chapter three. Chapter three is called The Waters of Casablanca. Hmm. You know, I came here for the waters. We're in a desert. I was misinformed. Yeah, mm-hmm. so um, it's funny to see that as a theme kind of running in my reading like Oh, length.
0: interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really great. Yeah. yeah. I had no idea that existed. I'll take a look at that.
1: Oh, yeah. It's, um it's good.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, good. So far, chapter uh-huh. three. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, and um, there's just so many, so many things in this book that are, that kind of point to the correct way to align yourself to, to things, <laughs> people and right. things. And I, I think that the very first thing is things, because he is an aristocrat, right? Which is his connection to royalty was his crime that he was being tried for. Mm hmm. And that was it, right? And then oh, yeah. they said, "Okay, well, you wrote this poem, so we're not going to kill you, but you're just going to be under house arrest forever." Yes. Um, so he does that, but he's he's a count, right? So he's used to living in the uh, the best room in the hotel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And uh, they quickly move him to an attic room because, well, if you're going to be here forever, we can't tie up this room forever. Um, And up he goes into a little tiny patch, and he has to decide what to take with him.
1: Yeah, because he had a very interesting moment where he thought about bidding our dearest possessions adieu. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: And
1: he thought, you know, we so often have to say goodbye to family and friends, and we never see them again as much as we want, but we lug our possessions with us everywhere. Yeah. He says if we're not careful, they replace our family and friends as being more important.
0: Absolutely. Isn't that something? I mean, yeah. uh, you know, and how many uh, monks and uh you know popes and <laughs> other things have talked to us about attachments, you know. Uh yes. Bishop Barron even talks about that. But just right. be having these attachments to things and and some of the some of the aesthetic uh, monks and things are just like, you should have no possessions whatsoever so that you're not attached to anything. But he oh, yeah. he um, describes it just perfectly, you know, um, just the, the ache, you know, and stuff that we have with these things, you know, mm-hmm. whether it be healthy or unhealthy. But then he, you know, says, well, of course, the thing is just a thing. But the the things that he, he's talking about are, um, you know, he says like this armor we are prone to recall is the very one in which we hid as a boy, you know, yeah. It's like an attachment to a house or a, or anything, you know, like this handkerchief mm-hmm. was my grandma owned it. And all these things you carry with you.
1: Right, and, and in that sense, they're not just things, they are those precious reminders. Um, it, it's kind of like the saints, right? Yeah, yeah. They're the physical reminders of how Christ would live in this one circumstance that this saint's life is in. Wow,
0: that's interesting. You said saints, it made me think about relics too. Oh yeah! It's like these are things that the church carries with us, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. But um, but I just yeah. uh, you know, so uh, the the book is scattered with this stuff where it just gets you thinking about these things in a in a deep way, and he has the correct attitude towards them, or. Right. Even if it's not at first, he he, he he gains understanding and moves in the right direction constantly. I just really liked the fella.
1: No, he is so likable. From the very beginning, when it starts with his trial, where he's, they, I guess there are per, people allowed to watch, spectators, you know, and some of his answers are so amusing, but people are laughing. They're like, well, you came back and why did you stay? For the climate and everybody cracks up. <laughs> Because no one's staying in Russia for the climate. And they're like, everybody will clear the room if you don't shut up. Don't don't feed his ego. <laughs> Come on.
0: Oh, man. Yeah.
1: And he's just being a witty gentleman. And he's not being <laughs> snarky about it. He's just, you know.
0: Yeah, I'm looking at something that I highlighted there. So, there's a person that's interviewing him uh, named Vizhynskiy. And he says, uh, Before we begin, I must say, I do not think I've ever seen a jacket festooned with so many buttons. And then Rostov, our, our man Rostov, says, Thank you. <laughs> and then Vizinski says, It was not meant as a compliment. And Rostov says, In that case, I demand satisfaction on the field of honor. <laughs> <laughs> And you know he's in a serious situation here. I mean, yeah. he, he's he's got to be thinking I'm gonna I'm gonna be dead at the end of this thing. But that's a good way to to treat to to, to confront life itself. I think. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's
1: it's probably the ideal of the noble attitude. Um, yeah. I would say uh, we're clearly starting to get into spoiler territory. I did want to mention one thing, though. I, on Goodreads, reviewed this, and someone there was very angry about the book and said Hmm. that they couldn't read more than a little bit of it because it was very obvious that they were going to make light of all the suffering and all the problems of the Bolsheviks and the Soviets, Hmm. and no one was taking it seriously and all this stuff. And I was like, well, then you should read the rest of the book because those things are all brought up. Mm-hmm. And they're, they seem like they're peripheral, but they touch the lives of the Count and of other people there.
0: Yeah, and how, how fascinating it is from this person's point of view inside a hotel that he cannot leave. <laughs> Right. To be witnessing these changes happening.
1: Yeah. And and, these difficulties,
0: these incredible things.
1: Exactly. He has friends. He has other people coming and going from the hotel who he meets and sees who experience all kinds of things because of what's going on outside. Mm -hmm. And so, you are never left thinking that this is all just a big, fun time. You know, he's having to cope also on a smaller level with things that everybody's coping with. So, Mm. um, but the thing is, is it's treated so well that it's not allowed to take over their lives. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. I don't know how else to say it, except that if that aspect bothers you, this might not be the right book for you because it's not. There are plenty of books who deal with that stuff. I mean, just read Russian literature before the revolution. you They're serious-minded people. But um, this is uh, just a lot more inspiring and fun and joyful. And, you know, you're allowed to yeah. do that and in while a way, these things are I, going on.
0: I think you said magical earlier, but um, yeah. there, there's that aspect of it. It's, it's, <clears throat> It feels at times not quite real. You know, it's mm-hmm. like a, a fairy tale, maybe some mm-hmm. kind of a... Something along those lines that's, you know, just on the edge of reality.
1: You know, somehow, and maybe I'll pin this down at some point, the writing reminded me of someone else's writing, and I never could nail it down. But what it also reminded me of when I was trying to figure it out was the TV show that only went on for two seasons, Pushing Daisies.
0: Oh, yes. Yeah, I've seen that.
1: It's Mm -hmm. that same telling of Things that are real issues, but it's just so whimsically approached.
0: Yeah, yeah. And this isn't
1: quite Mm -hmm. that level of whimsy, but it's it's still there. You know that just lighthearted touch.
0: Yes, I agree with that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and this this whole aspect it it makes me think of uh, people who, well, like you know monks and religious nuns and stuff um, Mm -hmm. that that cloister and don't don't interact with society at all. It's given me Mm -hmm. a, a little bit of a different view. To them, too, because can you imagine going through 30, 40, 50 years of life without actually engaging with the world at all, (laughs) you know, um, how how amazing that is. And, um, you know, some, I I don't know, it seems like um, in the medieval times and stuff, you know, you'd have somebody that was cloistered, but they could take visitors sometimes, right? But they would be behind a screen or something. Mm -hmm. So um, it's not exactly unlike this, you know, somebody could come and tell them what's going on in the world.
1: Oh, that's a and good point. And I would, I would well,
0: imagine they would.
1: You make me think of, we read In This House of Breed.
0: Yes. Uh-huh.
1: Yeah. And that's a cloistered community, and they're well aware of what's going on in the world. But that's not their job, right, to take care of right. what's going on in the world. So, And then really, in the people in the hotel, their job is to take care of the people in the hotel. <laughs> yeah. So, which they – the, the, one of the things I think is funny about this book is – and now I guess we're in spoiler territory, but um, this hmm. isn't really a spoiler, but um, the – fact that continually what you see is things are taken away from everybody because this is a luxury and it should be equal for all so like the horrible horrible moment when they've taken all the labels off the wine bottles Mm. you can have red or white no one's going to know what's what because that would say one was better than the other or more expensive or somebody was getting a better bottle but then years later or however long later they're back on because they showed up for a big dinner for the officials, and they all went, What do you mean we can't tell what's a burgundy versus a Cabernet or whatever it is? And mm-hmm. they went, Let's yeah. Get those bottles <laughs> labeled.
2: <laughs> oh, <laughs> so, too good. Yeah. Um,
1: things wind up going back to the way they are a lot of the time because they want these luxuries too, and they appreciate the value of knowing which wine is which. And various other things.
0: Oh, very true. You know, and that that is uh, some funny stuff.
1: <laughs> but Yeah.
0: yeah I, and I remember a scene where the Rostov had to was looking for a bottle that he wanted and had to look through the whole place, and he w- he was looking for the embossed
1: the thing keys. on the bottle.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So he could drink the toast. Right. To whoever it was who was going to have been dead 10 years. That was his family tradition. Well, you know, something else that just technically I loved about this novel. You get to the end, and um, of course, the Count, and we're totally in spoiler territory, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. um, the Count is putting together his plan, and you're seeing him execute it to get Sophia out And um, the fact that so many things that were brought up at the very beginning before you even knew what was going on or had really understood who he was, where they're just describing the hotel, are used in the end of the book. Mm. I mean, it's a real Chekhov's gun situation. Everything is fired. So, there's all these things like the dueling pistols. They're mentioned as a bit of history on page 44 of this book. (laughs) Um, The service stairs and the lower levels. That's when yeah. he needs
0: Nina. And That's the, and that, early on. You know that, those dueling pistols—that has to be a nod to Chekhov. You know this is oh, this is a, this is a Russian. It's a Russian yeah. book too, it, and he mentions it on page forty-four. And yeah. anybody who's paying attention is like, those are going to have to be used later. You know, <laughs> but you know he's a Russian author, so how fun? But I
1: didn't even think. Well, mm-hmm. the author's not
0: Russian. No, is the he? Uh, Chekhov is Russian.
1: Oh yeah. yeah.
0: So, so he's um, yeah.
1: But I was thinking. I didn't even think about it because they're hidden behind a panel in the wall. So, they're just telling it as part of the history.
0: Mm.
1: You don't even think of it. The uh, um, the Fountain of Youth, he, they're just describing the barbershop.
2: Mm-hmm. And yeah.
1: with the little bottle that so-and-so calls the Fountain of Youth with a twinkle in his eye. Well, that gets used <laughs> later. Yeah. Um, his sister's scissors, when you were talking about the possessions he takes and he's thinking about all this and he's moved his stuff and he puts her scissors in his pocket. Well, those get used by Sophia at the end?
0: Yeah yeah um, that's right.
1: It's just so many little callbacks and mm-hmm. and you know what makes those things important, especially things like the scissors.
0: Wow, that, that deepens uh, the, the view of stuff, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. you know so this this little speech that he's going through, you know things are just things, but yeah, I mean as you say that, it makes me think, wow, these things are of use and mm-hmm. uh, and and they're used. I mean, that, that just adds a whole other dimension to the, the entire situation. You know, he says, of course, a thing is just a thing. But um, it's kind of more than a thing, isn't it, later? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, it really kind of takes me back to what I finally felt was a major theme of the book. And this book has so many good bits, as you're saying, but none of them are things that overwhelm the book, like this is what I'm telling you. They're all just kind of in there as part of who the count is or whatever. But something that really struck me was how important small actions, small things, small details are. Mm. Because that's all the Count has to make his life up once he's stuck in that hotel. And to be fair, when he's thinking about his life that he's giving up, he's like, well, my morning routine would have been they deliver my coffee and a piece of fruit... And uh, then I go out, and I get a pastry here, and I get a newspaper there, and I pick up some flowers here, or a boutonniere, or whatever. And then I go back, and I do all these things. Well, he can have these things delivered, but he doesn't get to see the people and be out on the street and see what Mm -hmm. the weather's like. And eventually, by the end of the book, he's making his own coffee, And he's gotten his own piece of fruit, because this is how far everything has gone down. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not being waited on anymore and all this kind of stuff. But these little things are still what make up his life. And um, this may not be the right time to talk about all this, since it's such a big thing. But it goes to the lessons that they get from Casablanca, Mm. you know. Yeah, yeah. And, and this is the thing that Bishop the Bishop never understands.
0: Right, right. Yeah, so go ahead and go into that. Um, so the
1: Bishop is uh, he's, he's called that as a nickname, but he's he's got a different name and I don't remember it because they just call him the Bishop. And he is obviously a plant from the Bolsheviks and the Mm -hmm. Soviets or whatever they turn into since I'm kind of foggy on all that. But um, (laughs) he's there as a spy. He's brought in as an assistant waiter maybe, and they don't have a say in what they do. And all he's busy doing is constantly messing stuff up by going, oh, this isn't right. I'll get this fixed. He's the one who makes sure that all the labels are taken off the wine bottles. He gives a report to someone. So it happens. And by the end, he's moved himself up to manager. So, When he worries about the details, all he's trying to do is uh, bother the Count, really, as it turns out, and everybody who he thinks is better than him, or or who thinks they think they're better than him in his point of view. And you have the Count, who, to me, his story tells that importance of the small details, because he has the story of why he was in exile the difference that a string of uh, actions can make. And that's when he tears up the, count. Ca- uh, is, is it another count? Anyway, mm-hmm. a nobleman's IOU. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the nobleman then takes revenge by romancing his sister and they have a duel and all these things happen. And because of it, the end result is he can't be at his sister's deathbed when she dies. Mm. All because he let his, Lesser feelings take over because he had used manners to manipulate the guy to get back at him for being a jerk. He's like, so these small things make a difference. And then you look at how the small things make a difference in um well, just how all those little details that you're talking about in how he's able to get Sophia out. It's the yeah. friends he made just through conversations in bars.
0: Right, yeah, the friends part um, of the whole thing as well. You know, all these people that he's with in the hotel, I mean, he's there for years and years and years. And um, these folks that, uh, you know, serve him and, you know, the, the employees of the hotel, they're mm-hmm. like an integral part of everything that occurs. It was like without them, he couldn't have done what he did too. So, 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 this idea of these little things... Not only is it that he put the scissors in his pocket and decided to keep those, right? Mm-hmm. But it was also the people that he talked to and um, how how he was with them and how they came to love him and um, all of that stuff, too.
1: Right. He um, eventually became the head waiter there.
0: Yeah, yeah. So,
1: he's working with them. So, that's a different bond. And also, there are people like... Um, I'm trying to remember, the person who became an embassy representative for the Americans, mm-hmm. was he a journalist originally, or that's how he was presenting himself, maybe?
0: I think th- I think so, yes.
1: Yeah, yeah, and so they just become friends over a conversation, mm-hmm. a series of conversations, as we see. And um, so he's very helpful. And then how about, oh gosh, what's his name? Is it uh, Osip Ivanovich?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah.
1: He's one of my favorites. He wants to study Americans and European Western culture because Russia now is ready to be back on the diplomatic scene. And he says, but we don't understand these people. So they study the British and um, maybe the French through reading, but they get to the Americans and they go to movies to study them. Hmm. So, and the movies that he loves are the noir movies where he's like, how can the Americans make these movies? They're showing all their people the worst aspects of their own culture. <laughs> Why do the Americans not revolt over this stuff? Mm. And um, the one they focus on, though, that they both love, The Count and uh, Ossip, is Humphrey Bogart.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But they'll never watch Casablanca because he says that's a woman's movie. <laughs> well, of course it isn't. Yeah. And... um <laughs> The so, but because of their long relationship, which began as ordering the count as a servant to serve him because of his knowledge and living in France so long and all this stuff, they wind up becoming friends. And it's very much like Claude Rains's character, uh, the the captain and uh, Rick
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca. They they probably began as adversaries, but they can't help it.
0: Mm -hmm. They're kindred
1: souls in so many ways. That's
0: right. You know, this is the start of a beautiful friendship at Mm -hmm. the end, right?
1: (laughs) And we see it Mm -hmm. all the way through. Yeah. To the end. That's right. When he's saying, round up the usual suspects.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so Renault. Those, Renault is his name, sorry. Renault. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what I thought,
1: but then I was like, oh, maybe yeah. not right. So, and that doesn't necessarily sound like details, mm-hmm. but those are just little things of living your life and how you build a life. Life is made up of those small details.
0: Absolutely, yeah. And he, um, there's a quote that I have, it's near the end. Mm-hmm. Um, but it says, on the night before she left, she had left Moscow when Sophia had expressed her yes. distress... At what her father wanted to do, he attempted to console her with a notion. He had said that our lives are steered by uncertainties, many of which are disruptive or even daunting, but that if we persevere and remain generous of heart, we may be granted a moment of supreme lucidity, a moment in which all that has happened to us suddenly comes into focus as a necessary course of events, even as we find ourselves on the threshold of a bold new life that we had been meant to lead all along. Amazing.
1: Yeah and she's seeing the Eiffel Tower I think yeah. and all the lights mm. on the Champs-Elysees and everything and going I have a I have a tiny understanding of what that means mm. this is what my life is going to be like so different Yeah well, and because one of the things that they talk about is the f- the fact that this movie is used to show the little details and then I'll leave the movie because it's really not as much of the book as you'd think, but suddenly it all comes into focus around that at the end where they're talking about um, the guy who taught Sophia to play the piano
2: hmm.
1: or not to play the piano, but he was her instructor and helped her really become skilled He watches the movie, because the Count had talked to him about it, Mm -hmm. and he'd helped him escape. He acted as a decoy, taking his stuff to Finland and everything. But he said, there's the moment when Ugarte, which is Peter Lorre, is running away and going, help me, help me, and there's all this chaos, and Rick heads toward the piano. But he says, on the way, he stops and sits up a cocktail glass that had fallen over. Mm. And he said he had He understood that Rick had faith that setting up, sitting up the cocktail glass meant that the smallest of one's actions can restore some sense of order to the world mm-hmm. And that's the thing where the little things count. And so, what you do in your life, you know, the things that you let slide and you know you're letting them slide, those are the things that eventually you don't even think about anymore. And they're bad habits or they lead to something even more dangerous. You know, it's the beginning of a slippery slope. And the things yes, that you yes. kind of hold your standards on um, are are different. And and we see it with things like um, just how the Count lives his life. Like you were saying about his possessions. Yeah. and. And things like um, when he's going to, when he goes and winds up talking to the maintenance man on the roof, is that who the, what the guy does where he's got the bees?
0: Oh, yes. He's uh-huh. also
1: keeping bees up there and the bees disappear and the counts, like, I've had it. I can't go on living like this. I'm yeah. going to just throw myself off the roof. Yeah. After writing a lot of notes ahead of time to everybody and <laughs> you know, getting the bottle of champagne, yeah. you are to do it in style the way you do it. For sure. But then the bees come back and this is one of those magical moments where the bees were gone for maybe a year, but they come back and their honey tastes like the far off uh, place that he grew up that they had been talking about
0: mm.
1: where all the apple trees are.
0: And yeah, that's amazing. a
1: magical moment that of course is magical and kind of fairy tale ish, but it's a detail that is gets his attention mm-hmm. and changes his whole mood. Again,
0: another small detail. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Somebody somewhere set that cocktail glass upright for him. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
0: yeah. So yeah, that's amazing. It's amazing. And then um you know, the the purpose, you know, uh, other people, the community, you know, that, that the whole hotel became enhanced by his meeting with um, Nina, right, at, yes. at the beginning, you know, so his meeting with Nina and the instant friendship with this little girl that um, he experienced, you know, which didn't she just run up to him and say... Uh, what happened to your mustache? You
1: know? Yeah. And he's at lunch or something and he goes, They flew south for the winter or whatever it was. <laughs> because he doesn't care about little girls and he doesn't care about this little girl.
0: Uh-huh.
1: But she's persistent and unique enough that it captures his attention.
0: Yeah. And then it's like, you know, she she invites him to dinner or lunch or whatever. It was like, you know, your your presence is requested at dinner. <laughs> and mm-hmm. uh it was just cool. It was just really neat. And then um, yeah, the conversations that they had, you know again, there's this multi generational thing going on um that uh you know you've read the summer book, you know, so the summer book it reminded me oh, a little yeah. bit of that, you know in the same way yeah. you know you have a an older person and a younger person, and that dynamic is just really cool um. Uh, I, I think you know it's just it works really well. It's fascinating to watch. You have you have lots of experience and little experience, but a, extreme curiosity and sometimes overconfidence. You know, in the young yeah. ones, right? Yeah, yeah.
1: And both sets of people kind of aren't really caring necessarily about what the other people think. They're just saying what they think. Yeah, because um,
0: they're not you know preening for their peers. They don't have that worry.
1: And part of that with Nina and then later with Sophia, who is Nina's daughter, Mm -hmm. it reminds you, too, of something that he says. He also, at some point, runs across an actress Mm. who he becomes lovers with. And uh, they're obviously soulmates and everything. So, he's talking to her and about he's got this real problem with how do the Russians think versus how do the Americans think. And he's asking everyone he knows, is it true that the Russians just think inwards? Do we think of just the past? Don't you have to also have the past as well as the future? And um, one of the things that he's talking to her about is Moscow runs, they cast their shadow over the whole country. No Mm -hmm. one could move forward. And he's not thinking moving forward is a great thing because he's seen how it's been bad. He's worried about losing tradition. And she says... Do you think in America they're even having this conversation, wondering <laughs> if the gates of New York are about to be opened or closed, wondering if the former is more likely than the latter? By all appearances, America was founded on the former. They don't even know what the latter is. And so, then she shows them a Life magazine because she says, he goes, you sound like you want to live in America. And she goes, everyone wants to live in America, which again, they quote the whole beginning at some chapter of Casablanca
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. about
1: everybody wants to go to America. So, this is another kind of a bit of a theme of how do you think about your country, yourself, where you're going. And um, she pulls out a Life magazine because <laughs> she says, everyone wants to live there, look at all these conveniences.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And she's explaining an automatic garage door to him. says <laughs> And he says, <laughs> and he says I'll tell you what is convenient, he said after a moment, to sleep until noon and have someone bring you your breakfast on a tray, to cancel an appointment at the very last minute, to keep a carriage waiting at the door of one party, so that on a moment's notice it can whisk you away to another, to sidestep marriage in your youth and put off having children altogether. These are the greatest of conveniences, Anushka, and at one time I had them all, but in the end it has been the inconveniences that mattered to me most. Mm. Anna Urbanova took the cigarette from the Count's fingers, flipped it in a water glass, and kissed him on the nose. (laughs) And it's it's that's another theme of the book. All these things are horribly inconvenient. Um, Not only these things that he gave up because he was stuck in the hotel, but Sophia's dumped on him. Um, Nina's continually going, come up here to the balcony. And his pants are splitting because he's having to bend over in a way that's not convenient to the pants. Yes.
2: Um,
1: But Mm. because of all those things... His life has more meaning and richness, as he's saying. The yeah. inconveniences matter most because people are inconvenient.
0: How interesting. You know, um, even even Sophia's accident, um,
2: oh, yeah. which
0: sent him out of the hotel to the hospital, mm-hmm. um, opened the door really to, in my opinion, um, triggered the idea that of mortality and that, you know, she probably needs to get out of here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um it's it just, you know, just a, a an event along the way. Um but but it was the inconvenience that may have tipped the the uh uh I don't know, tipped over the uh dominoes which led to mm. her her uh, defecting, you know.
1: Well, I always thought that it was really because she was going to be ordered to be in a orchestra that was in a Mm -hmm. city far away. Well, sure,
0: sure. But
1: you're right. I I think if nothing else, what that showed was how much he cared about her. His own life meant nothing, of course. Exactly, yeah. And all his friends who rallied around. Mm -hmm. Osip, who was like, That's when you find out he's getting all these reports because they're keeping an eye on the hotel and everyone in it. And he shows up and he goes, okay, so we've got everything handled. I've sent over the best doctor. These things Mm -hmm. are going on. Now you have to go now. And I have it all set up to smuggle you back in.
0: Yeah. I thought that was Um, just so well done. He's he's there. He walks into the hospital. He realizes it is not the hospital that it was the last time he saw it, which was many years ago. (laughs) And he's like, I've made a terrible mistake. And, um... He's in there and this, this hack doctor who he doesn't trust starts to look at Sophia and then in walks this competent person (laughs) (laughs) from nowhere, you know, and it's just like, oh, they sent me over here and I'm taking control and this is what's happening and we need this. And all of a sudden it's like, okay, you know, good stuff is happening here. And then just to think, you know, that, that, uh, OSTIP just arranged all of that. That's just awesome. It was really great.
1: Yeah. And that's all again from those small details of because they're friends. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. yeah and because it, it's, the count was yeah and, yeah, and would he have realized that deeply had this not happened? You know, Mm-mm. would would he have thought that he had the resources he needed to pull this off if that hadn't happened?
1: Well, and the funny thing to me is that aside from meeting with the teacher, the piano teacher. When he's on his way out Mm -hmm. to set up a bit of a decoy, he doesn't really, I'm trying to think, he doesn't depend on anyone else to set up the whole plan. Uh. He sets up the plan completely on his own, and so when the other people wind up coming in to support him, it's only because they're presented with, oh, this thing is happening, Mm -hmm. or this thing is suspicious or odd or whatever. Right, right. And they but he he react. could
0: trust he could trust him to do what he needed him to do I guess well, I mean I, I just felt he like he wasn't it was
1: counting a, on it it was just yeah. because they were his friends and they knew what was going on and they loved him and, mm-hmm. and so they were gonna have his back and when that came up yeah um, sure I just love the bit also I just have to say this the thing at the end where he's sitting there in the lobby and he's waiting for the sign that Sophia oh. is in Paris and <laughs> yes. safe. When, like, 30 phones all start ringing at the same time. Mm. I was so filled with joy. It was like (laughs) cathedral bells going off.
0: That was really great.
1: It's just a hair-raising moment of joy. Yes. And that he also uses it as a diversion for himself to leave is Uh uh, also great.
0: (laughs) Yeah, just incredible. Yeah, And then that very, very end, uh, just a very, very end, Mm -hmm. you know... uh, where he sees Anna, you know, and that's yes. where he's headed. That was awesome. That was good. You know, he's like, he's sacrificed this stuff and, um, yeah, loved it. And
1: good he f- doesn't care that the house has been burned down long ago.
0: No, no.
1: I was interested in that. He's yeah. like, oh, yeah. Uh-huh. This, I have my memory because that's all there is of it and I'm not going to let that yeah. get
0: to me. Same thing with his things, right? Mm-hmm. Same, Same kind of thing.
1: Mm-hmm. I wanted to read, it's a bit of a lengthy passage, okay. but I thought it kind of conveyed some of the way that the narrator will take these little diversions that kind of lead you into an unexpected part of the story. And there aren't huge chunks like this at all, but the part where the count becomes invisible,
2: mm-hmm.
1: I don't know if you remember that or not. Okay. It's the beginning of chapter, uh, well, it's called Anonymity, 1924. Okay. And I just was enchanted by it. So, Anyway, here we go. Dreams of invisibility are as old as folklore. By means of some talisman or potion, or with the help of the gods themselves, the corporeal presence of the hero is rendered insubstantial, and for the duration of the spell, he may wander among his fellow men unseen. The advantages of having such power can be rattled off for you by any child of ten whether slipping past dragons, eavesdropping on intriguers, and sneaking into treasuries, Or plucking a pie from the pantry, knocking the cap off a constable, and lighting the schoolmaster's coattails on fire, suffice it to say that a thousand tales have been told in acknowledgment of invisibility's bounty.
2: Hmm.
1: But the tale that has less often been told is the one in which the spell of invisibility is cast upon the unknowing hero in the form of a curse— Having lived his life in the heat of battle, at the crux of conversation, and in the 20th row with its privileged view of the ladies in the loges, that is, in the very thick of things, suddenly he finds himself invisible to friend and foe alike. And the spell that had been cast over the count by Anna Urbanova in 1923 was of this very sort. Hmm. And then it says... um, In the weeks that followed, the count suddenly noticed he was disappearing from view for a few minutes at a time. He could be dining in the piazza when a couple would approach his table with the clear intention of taking it as their own, or he could be standing near the front desk when a harried guest would nearly knock him off his feet. By winter, those prone to greet him with a wave or a smile often failed to see him until he was ten feet away. And a year later, When he crossed the lobby, it often took a full minute for his closest friends to notice that he was standing right in front of them. Hmm. Because he was not
0: important anymore. Mm, Right. Yeah, that's beautiful.
1: And it's just a a lovely way to kind of show, it shows you a new way to think about it. Mm -hmm. Here's the curse of invisibility. And actually what they're just talking about, they could have said he wasn't important anymore and it was really shocking to him and it was kind of a drag <laughs> but they yeah. said it like this
0: yeah that's it's it's great you know this author's terrific um there's so many things like that throughout um you know like um he was uh um, i don't know he, he was thinking about his past you know the the Rostov siblings and things and um he's talking about bells Um, Mm. Which made me think of the, you know, what you just said, the bells at the end. You know, I don't know if it's connected, but he says, you know, presumably the bells of the Church of the Ascension had been reclaimed by the Bolsheviks for the manufacture of artillery, thus returning them to the realm from whence they came. Though for all the count knew, the cannons that had been salvaged from Napoleon's retreat to make the Ascension's bells had been forged by the French from the bells at La Rochelle. Which in turn had been forged from the British blunderbusses seized in the Thirty Years' War. And then it says, from bells to cannons and back again, from now until the end of time, such is the fate of iron ore.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: I love that. <laughs> highlight, highlight. Yeah, I just, I just think that that's yeah. fantastic. I was talking to a friend about this, and he said, you know, and coins too. Coins should be in there. You oh, know, yeah. bells and cannons and coins. Right. Um, You know, and they just go back and forth between all three of those things. So...
1: Yeah, in fact, Mm -hmm. I was just listening to the Bible in a year, and I'm way far behind, but Mm -hmm. it's the book of Judges, and it's talking about somebody who's a very bad priest indeed. But one of the things he does is he had stolen 10,000 pieces of silver from his mother, and then he gave them back to her. She said, oh, we must do something wonderful with this, so he uses them to make an idol.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So, it's the coins Mm -hmm. to something else. right. That's how long that's been going on. I mean, <laughs> and we know it, but it's funny to have that example. Yeah. Well, yeah. and I was thinking, too, is a lot of this invisibility thing also is connected to Anna Urbanova, the actress, who when he first meets her, is very famous in Russia and acclaimed. And she's walking around with a pair of borzois, so she's very fancy and all this. And it tells her story of how she gradually is cast down and how her career goes because the fortunes of politics. Mm -hmm. And the kinds of movies they make and all this sort of thing. And they say, at one point, it says um, that they join the Confederacy of the Humbled, which those are capitalized. So yeah.
2: yeah.
1: It says, like the Freemasons, the Confederacy of the Humbled is a close-knit brotherhood whose members travel with no outward markings, but who know each other at a glance. For having fallen suddenly from grace, those in the Confederacy share a certain perspective— Knowing beauty, influence, fame, and privilege are to be borrowed rather than bestowed, they are not easily impressed. They are not quick to envy or take offense. They certainly do not scour the papers in search of their own names. They remain committed to living among their peers, but they greet adulation with caution, ambition with sympathy, and condescension with an inward smile. Yeah, You know, that's something that all the little bits of our lives where it's we're making sure it's convenient to us… You know, because when Sophia shows up, he suddenly realizes, oh my gosh, I've gotten set in my ways. All my little little conveniences that didn't matter when I was 25. Well, now Mm. I'm whatever age, 45 or whatever. Oh, no. (laughs) And she's come and shaken everything up. And that's the humbling thing, like you say, about children
2: Mm.
1: often. Yeah, yeah. You've got to take care of them. And it's inconvenient to everyone usually. Well, not the child, but everybody else. And um, But the Confederacy of the Humbled is another kind of a theme is as we watch him, if he wasn't, didn't have imagination and the right point of view and the friends and everything, it would be really hard.
0: Yeah, for sure. You turn
1: into the bishop.
0: Yeah, because he feels like he has turned into that in in a little bit of a way, right? Mm -hmm. Um, When he's talking to Sophia, you know, as these plans are forming, um, he says, you know, I fear I have done you a great disservice, Sophia. From the Mm. time you were a child, I have lured you into a life that is principally circumscribed by the four walls of this building. We all have. Marina, Andre, Emil, and I— We have ventured to make the hotel seem as wide and wonderful as the world so that you would opt to spend more time in it with us. But your mother was perfectly right. One does not fulfill one's potential by listening to Scheherazade in a gilded hall or by reading the Odyssey in one's den. One does yeah. so by setting forth into the vast unknown, just like Marco Polo when he traveled to China or Columbus when he traveled to America. And then um, I'm just going to read just a little more. Sophia mm-hmm. nodded in understanding. The count continued, I have had countless reasons to be proud of you. And certainly one of the greatest was the night of the conservatory competition. By the mo- But the moment I felt that pride was not when you and Anna brought home news of your victory. It was earlier in the evening when I watched you heading out of the hotel's doors on your way to the hall. For what matters in life is not whether we receive a round of applause. What matters is whether we have the courage to venture forth despite the uncertainty of a claim. Yes. Love that too. Yeah.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, in a way, you know, he was saying that I, I am selfishly trying to bring you into my world and when what I ought to be doing is setting you free into mm-hmm. the world. <laughs> You know, and um, that's great life advice, too.
1: Yeah, recognizing that her potential, it will be wasted if she's just living in that hotel Mm -hmm. and not doing what she's born to do and what she loves doing. Mm -hmm. And in that sense, you know, because you feel terrible when Nina brings her and says, I've got to go because, you know, my husband's been put in this detention camp and I've got to go find him and straighten this out. And then we'll be back soon. And she's never heard of again. Nobody knows what happened to her. Right. You don't know if she died, if she just got caught up, because she would have come back for Sophia.
0: Yeah, you would have thought so. <laughs> but Nina
1: was living her life the way yeah. she had to live it.
0: Agreed. Yeah. She was
1: always that kind of person.
0: Right. And interesting, too, that in a way, I guess, you know, all of all of Russia was a hotel a little bit. It's like, you not yeah. only need to get out of the hotel, you need to get out of Russia. You yeah. Know, that was something, too.
1: Well, no, It's interesting. So, what do you think about this? The the one person who we see a little bit of their life is Andre. It shows him going home at one point.
0: Yeah, that's and true. His mm-hmm.
1: wife's not there. She's off probably at a grocery store somewhere, probably the faraway grocery store where part of it used to be a chapel. And so, the women will keep each other's place in line so they can go pray in front of the mosaics that are there. Mm. So, that's the closest they can get to a church. But then they talk about, you know, the room that's kept pristine because the son who died in the Battle of Berlin? Hmm. Some battle mm-hmm,
2: mm-hmm.
1: with the Germans. and um, But they don't show you, that's the most they show you of the fact that, I guess, the other people who are we only see in the hotel, they are also living with this reality.
0: Hmm. Yes, yeah.
1: Because at one point, um, his friend Mishka, we haven't Mishka, is that right? We haven't talked about it all. Mm-hmm. He is the poet who actually wrote the poem. <laughs> the
0: <account laughs> yeah, gets and all that the was a work. that was a huge revo- revelation. Right? Yeah, was like wow. Yeah.
1: He's like, yeah. no, I don't think I will be trying to write any other
2: poems. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because
0: yeah, he point. made such a big deal. I mean, it was like I was in the right place at the right time, and I had mm-hmm. to write it and. Turns out that wasn't even true, yeah.
1: Right. They did it so he wouldn't get in trouble because the Count, being nobility, could get away with that stuff.
0: hmm yeah. And
1: then they just left the fiction the way it was, you know.
0: <laughs> right.
1: But what I was thinking of is he comes back at one point. It's the last time he's ever seen, and he um, is, you know, ragged and homeless and all these things and says, man, everything's gone really wrong with what we hoped and dreamed would happen with the, the literary stuff that could be so influential and everything. And as he's leaving, he looks back at the kitchen at Emil and Andre and the count. And he says, who knew that making you an exile in this hotel meant you were the luckiest man in Russia.
0: <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Cause he was protected from all that. He had his friends, he had his close community who he had never would have known otherwise. And he has a fulfillment of his special talent of seating people in just the right spot (laughs) that his grandmother used (laughs) for big banquets. Mm -hmm. But then he could use as the head waiter, along with all his other special skills of wine and everything and food.
0: Oh, that's cool. Mm -hmm. That sentence was brought up twice, and I just looked it up, but um, I remember him using it again. And he says, um, back in the attic of the Metropole, the count found his door still open and Montaigne on the floor. Picking up his father's book, the count sat down on Sophia's bed. Then for the first time that night, he let himself weep, his chest heaving lightly with the release. But if tears fell freely down his face, they were not tears of grief. They were the tears of the luckiest man in Russia. Yes. Yeah.
1: He would never have met Nina. Mm
0: -hmm. He would
1: never have had Sophia to raise. Mm -hmm. Um... Yeah. yeah. And and he could have instead become, you know, the star's my destination. Mm. The bitter man who's angry all the time. I mean, again, it could have been Bishop, because one of the ironic things is when the Bishop says to him, he says, well, you've had your time he continued. You've had your chance to dance with your illusions and to act with impunity, but your little orchestra has stopped playing. Whatever you say or do now, whatever you think, even if it is at two or three in the morning behind a locked door will come to light, and when it does, you will be held to account." The count listened to the bishop with genuine interest and a touch of surprise. His sort? The Lord's blessing that he could do as he pleased while dancing with his illusions? The count had no idea what the bishop was talking about after all he had now lived under house arrest in the metropole hotel for over half his life he almost smiled on the verge of making some quip about the large imaginations of small men um but then he goes on and he realizes something else that the bishop let slip in his conversation so but what you realize is that the bishop has been in charge of what's going on the whole time. Hmm. And the most he ever does is these petty annoyances that he's been trying to thrust his spoke in the count's wheel, Mm -hmm. you know. Oh, gosh, I missed the first part of it. He said, your sort, how convinced you've always been of the rightness of your actions, as if God himself was so impressed with your precious manners and delightful way of putting things that he blessed you to do as you pleased. What vanity. And I'm thinking, Mm -hmm. and the count is like, I was just being myself and getting along best I could. And it's all attitude and intention at that point.
0: Mm. This book is just full of wisdom. It's really terrific. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so I listened to the author and author interview. And um, I, oh. thought, I thought that was interesting. He said that um, he took two years to write it. <laughs> and it, it basically, he said, I had it outlined. I had all this figured out. And then he wrote the first draft. And then he went to the hotel. He said oh. um, he went to the hotel and he lived a week in the hotel. Um, he said he thought it was important to do as much from imagination as he could in that first draft, and then he went to the so the the Metropole is a real hotel. And, I
1: didn't know that.
0: Yeah, and I looked I looked that up, and um, you know there was a, a YouTube video that I watched that was didn't have anything to do with this book, but um, the Metropole is a major landmark in in. Moscow, I yeah. guess and uh you know it's just a beautiful, huge hotel, really big mm-hmm. um, so yeah, just just interesting, you know, that process that that he he said, and then i I went to the hotel and then I decided what I wanted to change after the week, <laughs> mm-hmm. so that was something
1: well, but, it's interesting too, to think of him putting it in that hotel, and that was a smart detail, of course, because it's yeah. so close to the Kremlin mm-hmm. that they had to have somewhere to have their banquets,
2: yeah.
0: Right. So,
1: they weren't going to get rid of that mm-hmm. or divide it into apartments or whatever mm-hmm. it was
0: they were going to do. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. So, just good, good stuff. And um, this this, fo- this fellow, um, Amor Tols, has not written very much.
1: I think he's got one other book I've heard of, The Rules of Civility, mm-hmm. which I looked at the topic. And uh, people I've seen have said, oh, that's really good, but this one is better. Mm. And I looked at the topic and I was like oh that's about I don't know a time period and everything I just don't really like much so I don't know mm-hmm. if I need to read it you read it you tell me if it's good Then we'll it.
2: <laughs> for sure
0: <laughs> or I'm don't
2: sl- <laughs> I'm
1: fine with that I don't have to read everything some author wrote one magical book is enough
0: you know what the rules of civility is I've heard that it's good um, mm-hmm. that's what I'm told so I, I may mm-hmm. so yeah is there anything else you'd like to touch on um, Still, so much.
1: Oh, I know. That's we only touched on things, and I know we were jumping around a bunch. So, mm-hmm. um, anybody who's listening will know because they'll have read it. I guess that this is uh, just the the big things that you could really pick up on because there, like you say, there's so much just kind of dropped in there every so often. One little thought, one observation, and you're like, oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. Yes,
2: yeah. but
1: it's the way that we live again, I would say, is we'll have those thoughts, or come across those ideas, or read that quote, or hear that bit of music, and it will be very important at the time, but it's not the main theme of our lives, it's woven into everything else, it's just a part of who we are,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I yeah. think that's one reason that Count is so likable, is he's he's deep enough to have these realizations and thoughts and live his life in a way that has meaning, but he doesn't dwell on it. He just lives. I mean yeah, he's still he going to lunch his, and yeah. having his wine at lunch and so forth.
0: hmm Yep. Yep. Definitely correct.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: that's just part of his charm. It's it's yeah. good stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Yeah, what a life. I mean, yeah, it, it's a cool idea for a book, you know, but but you think, you know, well, what's going to happen? And, and the thing is, you know, not a heck of a lot does happen, I guess, but still, uh, it's just these observations through life and learning how to live it and, you know, that we all do. It's funny, um, mm-hmm.
1: not a heck of a lot happens, you said, but then on the other hand, everything happens. You know, sure. he essentially becomes a father. He has love, mm-hmm. um, and that's the thing: is our lives usually we're not big, important people.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: <Yep>. We're <laughs> we're we're not. I mean, that's not how most people are meant to live. Yeah, a few people are given that responsibility. Yeah, but most of us, we have our own things going on.
0: Yeah,
1: and it's that's the Therese of Lisieux thing, right? Sure. God sure. needs viol- little violets under trees <laughs> in His garden, also. Which yeah. I'm always thankful for. gives me an end. You
0: know, shoot. over there
1: in the shadow, there's a little bit of color. That's okay. <laughs> <laughs> we can't all be roses.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, so true. Yeah. Yeah. We can't all be roses.
1: Yeah. And this story is just such a wonderful tale because, I mean, when you see the Count putting this whole plan together at the end, it's like this is the culmination of everything that he was doing there. Mm-hmm. And it's just suddenly action packed. And the thing that they like about Humphrey Bogart, and I didn't say this at the time, I guess I have one last thing to say is what they liked was in every movie, there was a moment that turned him from being imperfect into being a man of intent. Mm. And so, when the Count at certain times is a bit daunted, like, you know, somebody says, oh, have a whiskey with me. He's like, oh, gosh, I've got to go steal this stuff from this hotel room. And he goes, no, Humphrey Bogart would have done it. Humphrey Bogart was a man of intent, and he would have had a whiskey after dark. (laughs) In fact, that's when he had his whiskey when he talked to Ilsa. We know he liked drinking (laughs) in the dark. Oh, have a whiskey, he says. You know, so, he's inspired by him in Mm -hmm. the same way that other people are inspired by him. And, of course, that element is you have something more going on since we just watched Casablanca. There's that moment when Humphrey Bogart in that movie suddenly realizes that, oh, wait, I have to do the thinking for both of us. What mm. is the best thinking? What is the way to do this? Don't be afraid. Go ahead. Be bold. Mm. Take a risk. Yes. Make a decision that might not be popular. Mm-hmm. And if you get caught, you get caught, but you've tried.
0: Yeah, I love that. I love that. I want to be a man of intent. Yeah. Well so then you need I to watch work a, on that. A bunch
1: of Humphrey Bogart movies. Uh, so. Well
0: we we've done some. We've yep. done some. Yeah. They Actually. were listing
1: them to have and to have not. I'm like, uh huh. <laughs> Petrified Forest. Oh, that yeah. was a great one. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, yeah. In fact, right here in my uh office or whatever you call this room in my house, I have uh, Bogart and Bacall right there.
2: Mm. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> a
0: little photo, yeah
1: perfect
0: so you betcha so so i'm in training to be a man of intent
1: oh i actually have humphrey bogart in the maltese Falcon. i have a little Fantastic. poster of that because have right. posters all over this room excellent um mary astor of course instead <laughs> and he is not the greatest guy in the world because sam spade isn't but you know he, <laughs> he, he stands up at the end he <laughs> well, makes good. a statement of intent uh, oh my gosh yes, i
0: love it i love at it at the end <laughs> But uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, too great. Too great.
1: Okay.
0: I love it. Role models all around.
1: Yes. Yeah, yes. So good. Well, I'm glad you liked the
0: book. Yes, I, I was did. So very, much, it. very much. Very it, much. It, it was, yeah, just another gem. Um, I do think this is a five star book myself.
1: Yeah. I yeah. think it's going on my top 10 list.
0: Mm, that's nice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Cool. So, yeah. So, what is next for us? So we have another book. Yes, we that? do have another book. Uh, it is it's Blue Highways by William Least Heat Moon. <laughs> summertime. Yeah.
1: Perfect it, summertime it's good. reading. Yeah, for road trips.
0: it definitely is. You bet. A road trip, a road movie. <laughs> yeah, a <laughs> road <laughs> <book>. <laughs> Well,
1: I uh, yeah, and I my husband and I read that when it came out. Uh huh. But not since then, so I oh, cool. don't remember much. I remember the Indian Wars with his ex-wife, and that's you yes. <laughs> know just that he called it that, and that's it. Oh, so that's funny. I'm looking forward to reading yeah, it again. Yeah, that's
0: such a tiny part of it, right? Yeah, um, oh, yeah, but yeah it's a funny yeah.
1: phrase, right? Yeah. I read
0: that book maybe a year to two years ago. Oh, okay. Uh, for the first time, yeah, and I, I just loved it. I thought it was terrific. So, be plenty to talk about in that.
1: Oh yeah, I can't wait.
0: So yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you for listening, everyone.
1: Yes. And uh, we'll talk to you again soon. Yeah.
0: Meet you at the Metropole for a drink (laughs) later.
1: (laughs) Yes. And we'll see what um, Andreas comes up with for us.
0: (laughs) That's right. Yeah. And bye bye, all.
1: Okay. Bye bye.